Hello, everybody. What is up? Before we start today's episode, I wanted to make a few quick announcements. Firstly, I'm going to try and upload my first bonus episode onto the Patreon page. Hopefully, that'll be up from a week from this episode when it comes out. It's going to be about in-game and all the theories before we watch it this week, and then we're going to watch it, and then me and a guest are going to talk about it and review it afterwards. If you would like to hear this episode once it comes out, um, just head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash powertheplaybill, and it'll be available to supporting roles or higher, so that's $7 a month or more. But there are other opportunities on the Patreon page for other benefits for less amount of money, such as access to my scripts, uncut audio, and much, much more. There are increments of $2 a month, $4 a month, $7 a month, and $10 a month to be a producer. And I would greatly appreciate if y'all could support me in this because being broke is pretty awesome, but having money is even awesomer. So if you could support me over there, I would greatly appreciate it. Secondly, if you would like to be a guest on the show, please head over to the website and fill out the Google Sheet I created under the guest tab and that will get you in contact with me and we can talk about some of your favorite plays and possibly get you on the show and then lastly if you like the show I would highly appreciate it if you go onto iTunes or to Google podcast and leave a five-star review because that is how we get noticed I actually found out this week if you search playbill on iTunes, I'm the first one that pop up, pops up, and that's great, but we want to keep it that way, so if you could just head over there, put some five-star reviews, put some five-star reviews in, that way we can get noticed and get the crowd a lot bigger so I can keep doing these episodes, that would be fantastic. But with that, that's about it, so let's go dive in into today's episode. Hello, Power Punchers. I don't know. I made that up during the theme song. We'll see what to call y'all eventually. Um, uh, hello, I'm Brayden Henselka, and this is Power of the Playbill. And if this is your first episode joining us, I am extremely honored that you're listening and very much appreciate it. A little bit about what we do here. Power of the Playbill is all about the impact of Broadway shows and the impact that the creators and the actors in them have on the world as well as we're going to talk about the themes of each play and how they are still relevant and impactful today. So yeah, today, just like last week, we don't have another guest, um, but if you would like to be a guest, head over to the website powertheplaybill.wixsite.com slash POTP. Apply to be a guest. I would ha- love to have you on. But in each episode, basically what we do is you break down a play and we explore every part of it. We look into things like the origins of the story, the people who made it into what it is today, how those people and the play have impacted society and anything else we find along the way. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get started with today's episode, which is about Disney musicals.
So, this whole episode, I narrowed it down to three I'm going to do. That way, if I want to do more in the future, I have the opportunity to. But today, we're going to be focusing on three main, which is Beauty and the Beast, Newsies, and Lion King. And personally, I am not afraid to admit it. I love Disney. I love Pixar so much. And for a long time, I only saw Disney musicals in my childhood. I've seen just about every Disney musical besides Aladdin, Little Mermaid, and Frozen, I believe, are the only ones I haven't seen. And I absolutely love them. They're great for any age and from both the musical side and from the technical side. And I just love them. So in the future, we might do episodes maybe on Mary Poppins, which was one of the first ones I saw and the only play I've actually seen in New York. Um, but that like Mary Poppins is an honorable mention and many others were as well. But I decided to go to, with these three since I've seen them the most. And with these, we're going to see how they've impacted Broadway and how they've impacted New York and a lot of other things. So we're just going to go ahead and get into it with Beauty and the Beast. So Beauty and the Beast opened on Broadway in 1994. And when it first came on Broadway it was Disney's first shot at Broadway and everything it had with it so Beauty and the Beast if you don't know the story you probably do but I'm just gonna go over it real quick so a wandering witch transforms a cruel and vain prince into a hideous hideous beast leaving him with only one way to reverse the curse to fall in love with another and earn her love in return and then so that's the beast and then you have Belle She's a beautiful book lover, um, and she encounters the Beast when she arrives at the castle to plead for her father's freedom, ultimately trading her life for his. And a tension over her imprisonment escalates in the town, spurred by Gaston, the selfish lover who Belle seeks hand, who seeks Belle's hand in marriage. And the relationship between Belle and the Beast grows, leading to an emotional trans- and transformational conflict and long story short happy ending beast transforms back along with all the other tools in the household which are actually people if you've seen it on broadway it's really fun to watch it's really cool to see all the costumes and it's really something else but this play first opened in 1994 at the new amsterdam theater in new york city which is a story we'll get into in a little bit this play was nominated for nine Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Score, and they won Best Costume Design. And this play came out the same time that Rent did, and I think that's why it didn't get as many as it could could have deserved, just because Rent outshined it, outshone it. Rent was a little brighter, shining than Beauty and the Beast was. Now. I think that this is really well deserved just because of the costumes, just seeing them between the beast and all the kitchen utensils and the grandeur of the whole set and everything. I think that it really did deserve um, cost best costume design. So that in itself isn't really all impactful as far as 
the whole Broadway goes. But what is impactful is that this was Disney's first Broadway show. And with any first with any corporation, this comes with a great risk. And with Disney, what they saw in New York City was a slum. And it was just that. So we're going to focus first on 42nd Street. Now, 42nd Street is in the heart of New York City and is located where the new Amsterdam Theater is. So in 1994, it was like late January, early February 1994, Disney announced a $29 million plan to restore the historic New Amsterdam Theater to the original spectacle that it was. And this is where, like I said, this is where Beauty and the Beast first opened. And before Disney came in, 42nd Street was filled with filth and all sorts of taboo things. It was home to many prostitutes and peep shows and just about every wicked thing you could imagine. When Disney came in, I'll put it this way, a article from amnewyork.com put it this way. Much of the success of Disney's Broadway expansion has coincided with the cleaning up of Times Square, a one-time haven for porn shops and drug dealers. People thought Disney was going to conflict with the culture of Times Square. It actually fit in and amplified it, said Tim Tompkins, president of Times Square Alliance. Tompkins recalled that before the 90s, no one wanted to touch the new Amsterdam Theater, which at the time was such in a bad shape that there were mushrooms growing on the floor. Disney's investment was a lifesaver, he said, hailing the company for preserving the theater's iconic look while giving it new life. When you go in now, it's the most beautiful theater in Times Square, he says. It is amazing to be reminded how damaged it was to begin with. Wally Rubin, district manager of Manhattan's Community Board 5, which oversees that area, said Disney's presence in Times Square played a major role in bringing other businesses and entertainment venues to the area. He said it made it safe for others to say, okay, if they could do it, then so could I. I encourage you, if you have the time, to go online, search for 42nd Street before and after Disney, and you can see the entire transformation. Because nowadays, you couldn't even tell if you walked down 42nd Street that it was once this slum. It's estimated that over 100,000 pedestrians walk the street every single day. And without Disney coming in here and without Beauty and the Beast, people truly don't know where New York might be today in that area and how it could have impacted it if it had not come there. Between just the economic status alone would have been devastating if it hadn't. Playbill.com put it this way. You might be surprised to see Beauty and the Beast on a list of groundbreaking new musicals as it was basically a traditional stage musical. Even among Disney shows, The Lion King is clearly more theatrical and innovative, but Beauty and the Beast was the first of many Broadway musicals produced by the juggernaut Disney and marked the beginning of an era of corporate producing. Necessary to the economics of Broadway today, many of the top producers and corporations, including other film companies besides Disney and other presenting organizations. So, their first shot with Beauty and the Beast here really opened up the doorway for these musicals to keep bringing in money. And I'll get more into that as we go into the Lion King part of the episode. But for now, we're just going to go ahead and jump into the newsies part of the episode. 
Now is the time to seize the day. Stare down the odds and seize the day. Minute by minute, that's how you win it. We will find a way. But let us seize the day. So, Newsies if you didn't know, is based on the real-life newsboy strike of 1899. So, I'm just going to go ahead and tell the story of it, and all of this is from the Newsies production handbook, so here we go. The New York Newsies. Boys and girls who sold newspapers on the street went up against two newspaper publishers, Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World and William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal to fight for the chance to earn livable wages. The Spanish-American War made the New Yorkers hungry for headlines, and circulation boomed as a result. But once the war ended, people were less inclined to buy newspapers. The war was bad for the world, but great for the newspaper business. The strike was a result of the newspaper publishers refusing to lower Newsies' costs per paper back down to pre-war prices. The Newsies were not willing to pay more for their papers to make up for a lack of headlines, so they decided to strike. Their goal was to make the newspaper's tycoons treat them like legitimate members of the business. The strike lasted for two weeks from July 20th to August 2nd, 1899. The Newsies eventually came to a compromise with the publishers. The price would stay the same, but the publishers would buy back any papers the Newsies couldn't sell. The Newsies' strike was a significant moment in history. It was actually one of the first strikes that was carried out by children and ended in compromise. So the kids actually did succeed in the whole story. Um, I've seen this play once live at the San Antonio Majestic Theater. And then I've watched it a number of times. It's actually on Netflix. So, hey, Netflix, if you're hearing this, you want to sponsor, go for it. Hit me up. But it's a great musical. It's a really fun musical. If you've never seen it before, I highly suggest you just go watch it. It's lots of fun. But it's not as truly impactful, I would say, as Beauty and the Beast or even Lion King. But it does still have some weight behind it. Not just from the more show tune style of a song that you hear in this play, but the meaning behind it, staying true to who you are and never giving up is really important in today's world, no matter how much is being said um, and how cliche it sounds. It still is very important, but it also, this play put a new spin on what Disney was going to offer. So this play opened up in 2011 and closed in 2014, I believe. So it wasn't that long of a running, but it still did have an impact um, on the Disney theatrical productions. So by the mid-2000s, it had become clear to the execs at Disney Theatrical Productions that the demand for a stage adaptation of Newsies was present. Year after year, it topped the list of titles most requested by theaters and schools to that licensed Disney shows, and people were constantly producing unauthorized productions featuring scripts crafted from the film's dialogue that was originally released. At the time, Disney theatrical productions began embarking on a new model for developing shows in which they were no longer solely created for Broadway or the Westin in Britain, 
but direct for direct inclusion for the company's expanding licensing catalog. Given the demand from professional to amateur theaters as well as school and community groups, it made perfect sense to look into create newsies for this style of stage and this style of model. So it really did open up for us, the non-professional actors, the school groups, the community groups to expand and be able to take part in something that is fun and something that is new and from Disney because plays are very expensive. Musicals especially are very expensive just to get the rights for a few shows and unfortunately I've never been able to do a musical or help direct a musical but I do. I have looked into the prices and it, they are insanely high with the rights alone costing three or four grand for um, a few nights for a Disney show. So this play, them trying to fix this model of trying to become more available was is really cool in my opinion. Um, and I actually found a clip interviewing Alan Macon, who was in charge of the music, about the whole creation part of this. We became aware over the years, ever since the movie just sort of crash-landed at the box office, that, that a whole generation had quietly adopted this as their own. And it was everybody's sort of secret pleasure. And at, at a certain point, that secret pleasure sort of began to surface, and there was pirated productions of the movie. And it became apparent that this was going to happen. And if we weren't going to write it, somebody was going to write it. You know, and we made we should be the ones to do it. So then Disney came to me and and, and said, "Look, we're going to do a stock and amateur version of this. Um, just want to let you know that you don't have to do anything. We'll take the songs and we'll just kind of cobble it together because there's a big demand out there." And I said, "No, no, 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 no. This is mine. I want to. If we're going to do it, I want to do it." So then they began to take meetings. Jack and I reteamed, and the original writers of the movie uh, began brainstorming with us about this. And it was really when when Harvey Firestein said, I'd, you know, I'd be interested in getting involved in this, that, that sort of raised the stakes. For the dance, dance arrangers, Mark Hummel, who's fantastic. Mark just worked on Sister Act with me. Um, and uh, no, that just comes out of the music. You know, obviously it's my, it is my music, but I, um, I have a great music team around me. Going back to the actual history of this play, there, there was an article I found from New York Times that says the newsboys were once the town criers of the city, street-hardened ragamuffins, shouting out headlines sensational enough to satisfy the penny purchase. Jacob Rise, the great chronicler of the New York underclass, described them as orphans and runaways who lived, played, craps, and slept with at least one eye open and every sense alert to approach of danger. Coopers, that is, along with the thieves and the occasional... Gugu or reformer. Newsboys so captured the American imagination that they became an open symbol, according to Vin- Vincent Vincent D.G. Orlamo. Interesting name. A history professor at the Branch College and the author of a coming book about the Newsboys. And this article was from 2012, so I bet that book's out anyways. They represented both capitalism's exploitive evils and its Buy your own bootstraps charms, child labor and free speech, the freshness of pears, and the kick of plug tobacco.
Dime novels and magazines featured inspirational stories about the newsboys. Quote, Will's Waffles or The Freaks and the Fortunate of a Newsboy. So, if you want, you can go look at those. Do-gooders established lodging houses for the newsboys. The Parker brothers even came out with a newsboys game. And there was even a newsboys prayer. So, I'll read that. Now I lays me down to sleep. I praise the Lord, me soul to keep. I pray he'll never leave me be. Amen. And that was their prayer. So when they started to strike, and there really was a newsboy named Kid Blink because he lost an eye. Uh, there really was a Crutchy Morris. There was a Racetrack Higgins and a Spot Colt. And a Spot Colin. And a Spot Conlin that was from Brooklyn. But they, there's accounts that said that more than 2,000 newsboys jammed the streets in the window sealed. Another 3,000 flooded the streets. Several took the stage, including Kid Blink, who buttoned his shirt and comb back his red hair before urging solidarity and speaking essential truth. He's according to records. He says, I'm trying to figure out how 10 cents on a hundred papes can mean more to a millionaire than it does to a newsboy. And he, or, and I can't see it. As the strike went on, some of the newsboys turned on one another on speculation that a couple of their leaders had been bought off. According to the Daily Tribune, for example, Kid Blink showed up on Park Row one morning spotting a new suit of clothes and leaving a trail of whispers that he was flashing a wad of bills. And these are kids, so they're going to see things and they're going to speculate and they're going to cause rumors. Meanwhile, the reports to Pulitzer continued. The loss in circulation due to the strike had been colossal, he wrote. It was really remarkable the success these boys actually had. But overall, in Pulitzer's biography, he maintains that the overall strike failed. The concession was very, apparently meant very little to the publishers, in part because they just gave the newsboys credit, not cash, for unsold papers. But most people see the strike as stunning if qualified success. Consider a bunch of kids from the, the tenements in the streets altered the operation of men powerful enough to influ influence presidential elections. And speaking of presidential elections, I actually did find an article on line from The Guardian saying entitled, Newsies, a powerful and surprising call to arms in the age of Trump. And I'm not going to get into too much of politics, but I do want to talk about this a little bit, seeing how it is kind of interesting. Basically, what it says is this play talks about when action against powerful governments and corporations seems impossible. It's, it is possible and it acts as an instruction guide kind of a thing, urging the powerless to band together and how it's relevant today. And it talked kind of about the elections, the previous election in 2016 and the upcoming one and how... With then and now strikes with people demanding to raise the minimum wage and the, t the recent teacher strikes that we see almost every month now demanding for higher wages for teachers, how this play is just relating how it is relevant into today's world. So to wrap up this last little bit of Newsies, 
I found an interview from CBS this morning about Harvey Firestein and him talking about Newsies and his career. And it kind of talks about, first off, his voice, and you'll you'll be able to hear that. And then secondly, his openness in the LGBTQ community. And then finally, going into Newsies. And this was from 2012. So here it is. Here's all you need to know about the range of Harvey Firestein's talents. He has won four Tony Awards in four different categories. That's pretty rare. Ooh. His latest project is the hit Broadway adaptation of the 1992 movie Newsies. We're glad to have him right here in Studio 57. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm very Pleasure. happy to be here. Has the voice... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're not talking about the village voice. Is your voice any yeah. different? No. Uh, I started I, when I was a kid. I had a, I was a boy soprano in a in a in a men's choir. So it has a changed. Voice no, yeah, I they was describe a boy your voice, Harvey, as Brillo and Bourbon <laughs> growl. That's one. I mean, the people have had a very good time describing it, yeah. and I've cashed in on it all. As you That's should. The point. How, how would you describe it? No, I think my favorite was a. a um, uh, a 10th grader learning to use a rasp in a uh, workshop class. <laughs> I, I don't know. I like a brillo vacuum. It's the one you had, and so you've gone to school with it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been an advantage, thing. probably. Well, and you know, distinctive. being an actor, you need to have something about you, and if that's what I have, I mean... Mm. Well, you've got talents, what you but have. But it wasn't pretty. I wasn't <laughs> going to get away with pretty, so I might as well be unique. No, but you were unique in many ways. Listen, I remember yeah. back in the day when you when you were one of the few people who came out who was openly gay and embraced yeah. that. Yeah, I never and, came out. And, I was never in. You, I was never you, in. You were never in. I don't know what it was to be in, so I was never out. But here we are in 2012 where it's still very difficult, I think, for so many people to come you know, out. How do you stand on that? I live in a, in a small fictional town in Connecticut, yeah. and where we know you from. Yes. And uh, when I first moved up there about 30 years ago, and I went to register as a Democrat, I mean, they practically closed town hall to me. Mm. I now see gay couples going into that very same town hall and getting married. Yeah. And Progress. I just, yeah, it's a wonderful world. Progress. I mean, we're, we're, you know, you can't go backwards. You're always moving forwards. It's the wonderful part about life. And uh, and that's terrific. Oh, we have so to cute. ask you quickly before we run out of time. No, Newsies. we have to talk about Newsies. I know. I just wanted to see it last week. Broadway. The dance numbers are phenomenal. The production is fantastic. Unbelievable. Those boys fantastic. dancing their why little did you hearts want to, out. But why did you want to adapt Newsies? It's about the, the newspaper strike the, of the Newsboys in 1899. Yeah, like who cares about newspapers? But actually, newspapers are kind of very important. And the Newsies are very important. What I saw here was an opportunity to tell the next generation that this is their world. Mm -hmm. You may feel powerless as a child, yes. um, but the world will one day be yours, yes. and you are responsible for it. Yes. So seize the day and take charge and of grab it. it. And that's I, what those kids do. In Michael's do. column today, Tony nominations are coming out Tuesday. They said it's mm -hmm. a sure hit. Sure, sure Oscar toy, 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 nominee, Tony nominee. We'll take Oscars, too. I'll take that, too. Harvey, thank you so much. But with that, I'm going to stop rambling about Newsies and get to the big juggernaut, Lion King. So, if you haven't seen this play, stop what you're doing right now and go find it on YouTube. Find some bootleg copy of it. Find some clips of the show from award ceremonies. Find something. 
because it is truly incredible. And if you've been living under a rock since 1994 when the movie originally came out, I'll, here's a quick recap, but I doubt any of you need it, but we're just going to do it anyways. The Lion King is a story of a young lion prince living on the flourishing African pride lands. Born into the royal family, Cub Simba spends his days exploring the sprawling savanna grasslands and idolizing his kingly father, Mufasa, while youthfully shrinking the responsibility his position in life requires. When an unthinkable tragedy, orchestrated by Simba's wicked uncle, Scar, takes his father's life, Simba flees the Pride Land, leaving his loss in the life he knew behind. Eventually, companion, eventually companioned by two hilarious and unlikely friends, Simba starts anew. But when the weight of responsibility and a desperate plea from the now-ravaged Pride Lands comes to find the adult prince, Simba must take on a f- formidable enemy and fulfilling his destiny to be king. And this play is an action-packed love story that is amazing no matter how old you are. I've seen this play, I think, three or four times live, both in Austin and San Antonio, and it is fantastic. If you don't believe me, then just look at the earned 11 total Tony nominations in the 6-1, including... Best Direction of a Musical, Best Choreography, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, and Best Musical. And not to mention the fact that this play has been on Broadway for 22 years this year now. It is just phenomenal. I love it. The theatrics alone behind this play is really cool. The technical part, seeing all the puppets, it is phenomenal. There are many clips on YouTube that will show you how the props work and how all the things that incorporate into this play to make it look so great. And it truly is iconic. But on to the impacts of Lion King. Lion King really did, it cemented Broadway as not only a destination for theater goers that had been swooped into Broadway by big shows like Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis, all these mega musical era that came before this and the show tune era, but Lion King really opened it up to families and tourists. And these tourists have become a huge force in the health of the Broadway industry and is a big reason why shows like Lion King and Phantom and even Wicked can sustain runs that are measured in decades and not a few years. An article from Market Watch explains the reasons why Lion King is still a powerhouse in the Broadway lineup. One of them being corporate risk. I mean, yes, Beauty and the Beast was the first production, but this play, they weren't as confident for it as the start as they were for Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast was pretty much straightforward as how they were going to make it from the movie to the stage. But Lion King, they weren't quite sure, and... Believe it or not, Disney could have quite easily pulled the plug when they realized how different the show was going to be from the movie. Indeed, Tom Schumacher, who worked on the play to begin with, recently recalled to Playbill that when they, they being the studio folks, came to see the first workshop, they hated it and 
it's exactly what we have on stage today. They told us all to do something different, and they they didn't. We at the time they didn't, and ultimately Disney, then led by Michael Eisner, then he was then the chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Corporation, and he pretty much ignored them, and the theater group ignored the studio folk and went forward with the idea and it certainly did pay off at the 20th anniversary performance uh michael gave julie tamer and the other artists free reign to step outside the cinematic kingdom inspired by the fact that lion king was the first disney movie to be an original story rather than based on existing source material so the question arises how long will Simba keep singing on Broadway? It's been 22 years. How much longer is this going to be available? The conditions that are going to determine this is really they don't have nothing to do with Lion King. Disney's theatrical, so Schumacher again said they're going to the conditions are going to do with Broadway's audiences and how often people will be still going to theater. Eisner said once that we can't do this, this doesn't work. Um, Eisner told Schumacher that, and Pete Snyder and Tammy, Julie Tamer back in August of 1996, the stage version of Disney's acclaimed animated feature, which for this trio had been, they've been developing at the time, wasn't even remotely ready for Broadway, which is why as Michael Lassell, I believe, that's how he pronounced it, recounts his terrific he wrote a terrific behind-the-scenes book called Lion King 20 Years on Broadway and Around the World um, in tw- 2017. He talks about that in his book. Eisner then reportedly turned to Sh- Schneider and said, you better get moving on Adida because you're going to have to put something in the new Amsterdam Theater next fall. Again, going back to Beauty and the Beast and how important this theater is because it's where Disney is located basically but just one year later disney's stage version of the lion king was at the minneapolis oprium theater getting ready for its very first preview and there was only one tiny problem tamer's artistic vision for the show was so innovatively ambitious that even though the cast had been rehearsing this piece for weeks at that point they had never actually gotten through an entire performance from beginning to end without stopping which is a hard same I relate to that so much because as an actor, you get going at these pieces as a company, we get going on individual scenes. And by the time we're done or not even time runs out for the rehearsal, and we just have to pick it up next time. And we only have so many full runs until the first show. But for a play this big, I cannot even start to imagine the stress and anxiety of not even full, not even running it once before they had to perform because I because the, with the production that I have done um recently that we've done many full runs um when we can but never just gone into a show point blank saying okay good luck break a leg <laughs> um but it certainly did work and it certainly has paid off for Disney um speaking of the paying off uh being on stage for over 20 years the boost of the economy is super significant as well. Not only in the local area, this was the play where things changed, where Broadway income was just a major chunk of Disney, um, the Disney revenue, not just from 
the movies anymore, but this was a, a significant part now, and it's, jeez, it's a lot. Um, and I'll actually get the number up today. So let's get this up. Give me a few seconds, and we'll get the actual gross amount that Lion King has made as of today. That is April 18th when I'm recording this. So Lion King has made a total of one billion five hundred and eighty two million two hundred fifty two thousand and seventy four dollars as of April 14th. I checked that number back in November and since then it has gone up fifty million dollars just from being in New York and it that makes it the highest grossing musical of all time. It has an average weekly gross of three point almost seven million dollars a week as of ending last year, um, at the end of December. And overall, between all these impacts, this play is just a juggernaut overall and it's great and personally I don't see that anytime soon. So you can go to New York anytime and probably watch this play. It's incredible. Not only not to mention that they're doing the live action, which I'm excited for and excited to see. But with that, that's the first half of today's show. And we'll go ahead, take an ad break, and then see you in a minute. And we're back. So now it's time to get into the second half of the podcast where I choose my favorite character from each of the plays and we go into songs of the week. So starting off, we'll start off with Beauty and the Beast. And my favorite character in that play has to be Luminaire. Um, just if you've seen it, it he does a fantastic job um, overall. He has nothing like personal connection with him, but I love the way the actors pull him off and the way he's written into the play. Going into Newsies, I would have to say, very cliche, Jack. Jack is my Jack Kelly is my favorite character in that play. Just... He does a great job. Um, if you ever listen to, go to the soundtrack and listen to Santa Fe, it's about mm, probably like two thirds through the soundtrack. I could be wrong. Don't fact check me on that. It's a really, really deep song. It's very, um, if you ever feel like the world's going against you, um, that's what the song feels like um, at the time because that's what the world does feel like the Jack that the whole um, universe is crashing down on him and that he should just run away and fulfill his dream in Santa Fe and not care what anybody else thinks and just go for it and he does a great job his voice is amazing but again go watch it on Netflix it's a fantastic little watch if you have time but and then lastly Lion King is hard because you have all the main character you have you have Mufasa with Simba and then you have one of my like one of my favorite characters is or characters are the hyenas especially the scenes when they do 
Mufasa, say it again. Um, and they laugh and they have the fear of Mufasa and the scar comes up into a, uh, behind them. And it, I found that scene hilarious every time. But oof, this one's hard. Broadway wise, I would have to say Scar is my favorite. Just because of the technical side of him, of the costume of Scar the puppetry is really, really cool. I encourage you to go look into it. And then just all the songs of Scar being prepared. And then the whole Mufasa death scene. And oh, he does such a great job. Any actor who plays him, they wrote wrote the character so well. But overall, his character is really fun to watch and really fun to find on the little details you see because it it is truly amazing. Um, But with that, we'll go ahead and get into songs of the week. So my first song, well, first off, if you're new to this, songs of the week are basically me and if I have a guest, we'll each choose two songs. One Broadway, one non-Broadway that we either heard recently that we liked, um, that we have an emotional attachment to, that anything where we could connect to it, um, or if you just like it, we just throw it in there and then put it on. I'm going to try to get all the songs of the week. I'm trying to put them on a Spotify playlist that you'll be able to find um, under the account power of the Playbill. So you'll be able to do all that. And then I'll once that's done, I'll put it up on the website a link to Spotify and you'll be able to hear all those put together in one place. So firstly, my Broadway song of the week is also a non-Broadway song, but it is this version is the Broadway song in the musical Jersey Boys. It I chose Sherry. And the whole world exploded. This song was released February 1st, 1962 uh, by the Four Seasons. The lead vocals is Frankie Valley, which makes sense, like the musical Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons with Jersey Boys. And basically for me, the song is not only is a fun poppy tune that gets stuck in your head and everything with that, but I also grew up listening to it in my grandparents' cars um, and when we're hanging out at the river, the song would come on. I would hear it, um, and I really did. I really did as a kid grow attached to the Four Seasons and uh, getting to listen to them, and I still love them today. I haven't seen Jersey Boys. My other people in my family have, but I would love to to find a copy of it somewhere. But yeah, overall, I really like this piece. If you have a Broadway song that you want to recommend to me. DM me at any of the Instagrams or email me at powerthepaybill at gmail.com and I'll take a listen to it. But with that, I'm going to move over to my non-Broadway song, which traditionally for the past couple episodes I've done like just normal songs that you could hear on the radio, um, ones specifically with lyrics. This one, however, does not have lyrics and is very relevant in where we are today as far as movies go and it is the Avengers suite. 
So, basically my thoughts on this. Firstly, I am a huge Marvel nerd. Um, I am so excited for Endgame to come out. I'm actually thinking of doing a before and after bonus episode for the patrons um, on theories about Endgame. And then afterwards, we'll do a like, review over it, maybe. Um, I just got to find a guest, maybe, and we'll get a bonus episode on that that you might hear on here way in the future um, if I need a break. or most, But you will find it, hopefully, by the Monday after Endgame comes out out maybe or maybe when the next episode premieres you might hear it if you are a patron with a supporting role level or higher which is seven dollars a month but back to the song I absolutely love this song it is so iconic now I actually arranged a version of this for our marching band to play in the stands for football games and it's so much fun, and I absolutely, I absolutely love this song. I can't wait for Endgame. If you ever want to talk about Marvel, hit me up. I'm always, um, I always have open ears for it, and I'm always ready to discuss it at all times. But this song was originally debuted in the first Avengers movies back in 2012 by Alvin Silvestri, and since then has gone into the hearts of many a many nerd and geek. And it's definitely in mine. I can't wait to see what happens this coming week with Endgame. And I'll get back to you as far as the bonus episode goes. But with that, that's pretty much the whole episode. Um, Thank you all, everyone who listened today. And thank you for everything y'all do. Just keep spreading the word by mouth. I can't stress how important that is. That these podcasts, especially starting up, don't just pop up on random uh, um, Spotify and iTunes pages at first they have to get popular at first and the only way to do that is for you the listener to go out and spread the word if you like the podcast please suggest it to your friend neighbor family member anyone and I will highly appreciate that if you want to get in touch with me you can find me at power the playbill on Instagram and Facebook and power OT playbill on Twitter you can also find me on the website at powertheplaybill.wixsite.com slash POTP. And there you can find all sorts of helpful things for the show. You can find all of the social media accounts. You can find the episodes. You can find the guests that I've been on here. You can apply to be a guest, which would be really cool if some of y'all start doing that. Um, I would love to have you on here. You can find ways to the Patreon page, which you can do and help support me. Like I, I've said in the past, they come at levels of two, four, seven, and ten dollars, and you get certain awesome benefits, like scripts and uncut audio. If you are wanting to know what to do in between the two weeks that episodes are released, few good podcasts that I listen to. If you're more nerdy, um, you can head on over. If you like Harry Potter, there's a podcast called Potterless, um, hosted by Michael Schubert, um, Shubes for short. And he is a, I think he's 26, year old man going through the Harry Potter series for the first time. It is very funny. It's very hilarious. He has a guest on every time. And they just go through each um, chapter or section of each Harry Potter book. Right now, he's nearing the end of book seven. But you can hear his entire adventure, which is great, and how he's progressed from there. So you go over there and listen to that. It's called Potterless. 
And if you're not so nerdy as far as that go, but you do like music a lot like me, there is a podcast called Punch Up the Jam hosted by a guy named Demi and a girl named Biel. And they take a song that you may or may not know and they try to fix it as of their words, they fix it and they make a, they go through the song and they take it apart bit by bit. And at the very end, they make a new song from that one. Maybe things that it's left out or a whole new feel to it entirely. It is explicit. You have fair warning for that. But it is very funny. They are two comedians from L.A. But their work's very good. They're very good singers. I really like them. But yeah, go ahead and head over to that. But this will come out the Monday after Easter. So I want to wish everyone a happy Easter, belated Easter. Um, And I hope everyone has a great day. And thanks for listening. And until next time, guys, break a leg. Power of the Playbill is created, hosted, and edited by Brayden Hinsalka and produced by Brayden Hinsalka and Mary Stevenson. If y'all guys want to hit us up on social media, follow Power of the Playbill on Instagram and Facebook and Power OT Playbill on Twitter. If y'all guys want to see all the cool things on the website, head on over to powerofthepleybill.wixsite.com slash POTP. Thanks for listening, guys, and break a leg.